Well, turn with me to John chapter 16, verses 5 through 33. You may notice my voice is cracking a little bit this morning. I'm just trying to get in touch with my inner 13-year-old for you, so hope you enjoy that as we go along. That might make this sermon a little bit shorter. We'll just see what the Spirit does. But we're going to be in John chapter 16 this morning. And this passage that we're going to explore is the end of quite an extensive conversation that Jesus has had with the disciples in the upper room on the night before he was going to be betrayed. Jesus is engaging with these people and he begins his conversation with him back in chapter 14, verse 1. And the first thing he says to them is is to let their hearts not be troubled. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so Jesus is trying to bring solace to them, and he's going to conclude his conversation with them on the last, chapter of, last verse of chapter 16 when he says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. So he wants them to take heart. He's trying to bring them solace and comfort in their most distressing hour when it seems like everything in life is about to crumble apart. So that's where we're at this morning, and let's take a moment now to read this passage from John 16, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says this to the disciples. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled my heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again in a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourself, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive 
that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. I think I mentioned to many of you in the past that Rebecca and I met and got married while we were seminary students up in Jackson. And so because we made that brilliant decision to get married while we were both in graduate school, uh, we needed to find some way to make ends meet. And so Rebecca took a job at Bellhaven College as a resident director. And so we spent the first year and a half of our marriage living in a dorm full of 150 college girls. It was the biggest estrogen experience of my life, and I'm still working through getting over that. One of the rules that they had in the residence hall is that you, you couldn't have open flames. You couldn't have candles or anything like that. But one day, we smelled some smoke coming from down the hall. So we went down the hall to figure out what was going on, and we found the culprit. We found the, the, the room from which this was coming. So we knocked on the door, and the resident, the girl, opens up the door, and, and she looked despondent and kind of teary-eyed. And we, we just asked, you know, what was going on? What was the matter? And she said that her boyfriend had just broken up with her, and so she was taking all of the pictures of him, and she was setting them on fire. I mean, what an extreme thing to do. And maybe there's something therapeutic and some kind of solace that she must have derived from that, but I think that all of us, to some extent, know what that's like. We, we know what it's like to be so deeply wounded and disappointed, to have our hopes dashed, to have our future called into question, to experience injustice from people, to suffer the consequences of our own bad decisions, our own sin. And there's an anger and a grief that, that comes into our lives where we feel like we want to set something on fire. It, it, it burns at the level of our souls. It brings pain to us. And so we can dismiss what this 19-year-old girl was doing as just young heartbreak but there's a sense that in one manifestation or another, that is the reality of our lives. I mean, that's what we experience. And her reaction is symbolic of what we do or what we would like to do when the wheels fall off. It's where the disciples are. The wheels are falling off their lives. In 24 hours, the person that they had banked their whole life upon, that they had devoted their whole life to following, was going to be nailed to a cross. He was going to be taken off that cross. He was going to be wrapped in burial clothes and put in a tomb. And his body was going to be cold and he was going to be dead. And the world was going to rejoice at that. That they would put this heretic to death and they were going to rejoice. But the disciples were going to suffer. The disciples were going to mourn. In fact, Jesus 
knows this. He knows this is coming, and he tries to get into the life of the disciples to bring them some solace. He's going to be in the tomb, and he uses a fascinating metaphor to describe the experience that the disciples are going to have here. In verses 21 through 22, he says that there is a sense in which their lives are going to experience the pains of childbirth. That's how painful this experience is going to be for them. Now, for obvious reasons, I've never gone through childbirth. But I've been there when it happened. And let me tell you, that is quite an experience. Everybody who has seen that and been there for that knows the experience of what that's like. If Rebecca wouldn't have gotten the epidural, I would have gotten one for myself because it was just that out of the body. Bill Cosby says that childbirth is like taking your bottom lip and pulling it over your head. That's what it feels like. The world is about to rejoice at this, and this is the pain that the disciples were about to undergo. They were going to mourn to such a degree that it was going to feel like childbirth to them. And friends, there are days and there are seasons and there are even years of your own life that are going to feel like that. So the question we have to face is, how are we going to navigate life when that is our reality? When that's our experience? When our life is full of pain to one degree or another? seems like what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to impress upon us that... On this side of the resurrection, on this side of Pentecost, where we see in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit comes in just this beautiful, unique, special way upon the people of God, that that the people and that we are going to be people who have received a helper. We have a helper to get us through these periods of anguish that feel like childbirth. Jesus actually wants us to see here that we are better off, you and I in 2010 are better off now than than the disciples were when Jesus was physically present with them. It's hard to believe. There's so much in my life where I just want to have Jesus present with me so I can ask him questions and get a direct answer like that and not have to work through all of those issues there. I just want his physical presence with me. But Jesus is saying we're actually more advantageous. We're in a better position now because of the, the deep presence of the Holy Spirit that we have on this side of the cross and on this side of Pentecost. Because the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us. We're the temples of the Holy Spirit. And he actually makes his home inside of us, within us. It's wildly personal that he would come and dwell amongst us and dwell in us. I think about that and I think about just how profoundly I have depersonalized my Christianity. I wonder if you've done the same thing. Putting our, our, our ducks into the life of Christianity where we see our faith, where we see our identity in Christ as being Nothing more than really a bunch of propositions, a bunch of facts that we're supposed to know. And what we end up having is a a faith that ends up being cold and distant and anti-relational. See, the, the reality is that Christianity is in fact full of propositions. It's full of doctrines. It's full of facts. It's full of all that. But they, the thing is, is that they come to us in personal fashion. They're they're personal, they're relational, they're practical, and they get internalized by us to the degree that we see 
our relationship with Christ is really a relationship with Christ. That's not something just to be learned, an abstract academic concept or field of study, but actually a person to be known. There's a world of difference in, in the way in which you read Scripture when you understand your faith like that. That you're desiring to get to know this person who has made you, who's created you, who's created all things, and who has your best interest in mind. I think the reason why I say that is because there's something in this passage about the nature of who God is and about the nature of who we are that is just fundamentally relational. Jesus is teasing this out for us. He's he's bringing into our lives in the midst of pain that we need to be zeroing in on, of all things, the Trinity. The fact that God is in and of himself this beautiful relational being. That's part of the characteristic of who God is. That's part of his very nature where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are just dancing around one another in relationship, in total joy of one another. And he's created us in his image. And we are created that way as well. We, we have a nature within us to not only be in relationship with one another, but to be in relationship with the God who has created us. That's what he desires for our life. So part of what that means, part of what it means to be living in a vital, vigorous, vibrant relationship with Christ is that we're actually letting him influence us at the level of our souls. We're letting Jesus Christ influence us. We're listening to him. We're getting into his mind and his heart. We're discovering what he loves and what he hates and what brings him delight. See, if we're created by God and we're created for God and his glory, then the only way in which we're going to be truly content, the only way in which we're going to be authentic to who he's created us to be is if we are relationally connected to him in a beautiful way. Part of what it means to be a Christian, to be in relationship with him, is to tune into that internal presence of the Holy Spirit within our lives. That the Holy Spirit is actually dwelling within us and tuning into that. And what it means for you and what it means for me, at least in part, is that we begin to see him as our helper. That he comes alongside us and he helps us in the midst of trouble. See, all of us need help. There's not one person who is not in need of tremendous help all the time because we're going through pains, we're going through, through struggles, and there's all kinds of confusion that we're facing all the time. And for his people, God provides that for us. His Holy Spirit comes to us. He is our ever-present help in trouble. You don't need, even need to be a Christian to believe that you need help because all of us are messed up. The world's messed up. We engage in a messed up world all the time with our messed up souls. We need help at every manifestation. And the Holy Spirit is coming to us and being our helper in our time of need. One of the ways in which it seems like Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit helps us is by guiding us in the truth. The Holy Spirit guides us in the truth. It means that after Jesus raises again from the cross, and he ascends into heaven. And the Holy Spirit comes upon his people in a dynamic way, in that presence way. He is going to come to his people and he is going to guide them in truth. He's going to bring the truth of God to bear upon his people. He's going to speak God's language to us. 
He's going to give us God's vocabulary. And where else is that language and vocabulary to be found? In any place other than in His Word. In any place other than in Scripture. See, this is something I think that we take for granted in a world of all of the distractions that we have. In a world where Facebook and Twitter and the Internet and television and all of the things that vie for our attention that come to us in such tremendously dynamic form. We, we, we build so much of our lives upon that and we miss the fact that what we really deeply need is to be relationally connected to a God who's speaking to us by His Holy Spirit in His Word. That's what we really need. That's what we really need to grow and to mature and to take great delight in Him in this world. Greater delight than all those other things tell us that they can provide for us. See, the Holy Spirit comes to us and He brings that Word to bear upon our lives. He helps us to make sense out of it. In the midst of all of the mystery that God is and the mystery that we are and the mystery that the world is, He takes His Word and He takes His truth and He helps us to know God. He helps us to discover something about ourselves that we deeply need to know and to know and and live out His truth in the ordinary context of our lives. But see, if you and I don't have the Spirit guiding us in the truth, if we don't have Him guiding us in the Scriptures, then where else are we going to get this truth from? Where are we going to get our bearings in life? Are we going to get it from the, the winds of the culture around us? Are we going to get it just from our, our feelings, our hormones, our, our desires? What other people, people tell us should be most important to us in life? See, as helpful as maybe some of those things are, they're not constant. They're, they're wildly out of control. But what Jesus is telling us is that the only constant we have is the Holy Spirit. Guiding you and me in the constant truth of God. It's the truth of Scripture. I want you to ask this question. Are are you really seeking out the help of the Holy Spirit? And by that I mean, are you digging into the Scriptures in such a way that is Spirit-dependent? You're asking Him to bring this to bear upon your life, to to show you something of Himself, show you something of yourself that you deeply need to know and personally understand so that you will personally delight in Him and live for Him, and enjoy Him. Is that characteristic of your life in any way? Do you have any slot in your day-to-day life where you can commit yourself to listening to God, to listening to Him speak to you through His Word? The Bible was written, as Peter says, the Bible was written by holy men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the way that God tells you His story. It's the way that God reveals His heart to you. It's the way in which He puts His desires and His truth on display. And I think the sad reality, and I accuse myself in saying this as well, the sad reality for so many Christians, for so many of us even in this room, is that we rarely, if ever, read the Bible. We rarely, if ever, read it with a view to personally getting to know this God who loves us and gave himself for us and created us so we would enjoy him. 
I don't say that to make you feel guilty, to condemn you in any way. I don't say that because I'm, I'm saying it to myself as well. But I think that if we're personally going to get to know this God, we've got to tune into what He has to say to us. We've got to ask His Holy Spirit to come and make His Word an integral part of our life. To chisel it into our hearts so that it just becomes what we breathe and what we live and how we deal with life that is at every corner seeking to subvert our identity in Christ. We need that so we can get God's vocabulary. So we can get His language. So we can understand His heart. So don't settle for a Christianity that is distant and impersonal. That's just about going through the motions. It's just about learning how to get your moral ducks in a row and to raise your kids right. See, that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is about knowing someone. It's about having a helper come and help us to know that someone. To illuminate his word and his truth upon our lives. The Holy Spirit is our helper. But he's not just our helper. The Holy Spirit is also our convictor. I don't even know if that's a word, but that's what he does. He convicts us. We see this in verse 8. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Remarkably enough, what Jesus seems to be saying here is that even in the midst of our struggles in life, one of the things that he's trying to do is to bring us back down to earth. The Holy Spirit comes to bring us back down to earth, to see us as we really are and see Jesus Christ as He truly is so we'll truly understand ourselves. The Holy Spirit comes to us in order to draw us to love and to treasure Jesus Christ more than anyone or anything else in the world and to become satisfied with Him even in the midst of the deepest possible pain, a pain that feels like going through childbirth, to be satisfied with Him above all of the other joys and pleasures that we have in life. And He seems to be saying here that the only way in which we're going to delight ourselves in Him is if we take our gaze away from our navels, away from ourselves, away from what we've told ourselves that we need and must have in order to have a life that's of, of any value and any worth and any enjoyment to turn our eyes away from that and to set our gaze upon Jesus Christ. To see Him as He truly is. If you've ever been to a place like New York and you've been there at night in downtown Manhattan and you've seen the majestic Empire State Building lit up, you're starting to get a, a picture of what the Holy Spirit does. See, that building is lit up. You can see it at night. You can see its beauty in the, in the evening when the sun has gone down because of these floodlights that are hidden. You can't find them unless you're pretty much standing right over the top of them. And they're pointing up. They're looking upward. So you can see the detail and see the intricacies of this beautiful building that you would not otherwise be able to see as well without it. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is somewhat like that. The, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you is that he functions in such a way to turn the light upon Jesus, to get us to see him who as he is, to see our need, and to see Jesus as the one fulfilling that need, all of our needs. And, to, and it helps us to see ourselves for who we really are. 
It's people who've fallen short of his glory and who are only going to be delighted as we delight ourselves in him, who, who lay our lives bare before him. And so what we need him to do is to bring us back down to earth, to convict us of how we've tried to make a lie for ourselves, tried to justify our existence on the basis of doing whatever it is that we please, to get all the pleasures that we can get out of this world, to milk it for all it's worth, and validating our existence on that basis, or validating our existence on how good we are, how well we match up to other people, how well we're doing morally compared to other people. Both are ways to avoid Jesus. Our unrighteousness and our righteousness, both are ways to avoid Jesus. And the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us of how we've done that, of how we do that. The Holy Spirit convicts us that our goodness isn't good enough. And only the righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to us as we receive him in the gospel, that's the only righteousness that is good enough. That's our only hope in life and death. And when we see that, our arrogance gets killed. Our pride gets killed. The way we interact with our spouses in marriage, where it becomes a power play, us trying to get what we told ourselves that we deserve out of that, that sort of thing gets killed. We start to do what we discovered in Sunday school this morning. When we're reading Philippians 2, we see Jesus is the one who humbled himself. And he made himself nothing in order that we might have life. And so we humble ourselves because we realize that we in fact are nothing. Are nothing and that we need him. That he is our only hope. That he is the one that transforms our souls. And that kind of humility, that will transform your relationships. It will change your marriages. It will change the way in which you interact with your parents. It will change the way that parents engage with their children. It will change the way we work. When we see Jesus like that, and we've been convicted at such a deep level that we are greater sinners than we will ever begin to imagine, but we've been given greater grace than we could ever dream about. That's ours in the gospel. He convicts us. He convicts us of those areas of our lives that we've been trying to quarantine from God that we've been trying to hide from him. The Puritans called these things our darling sins. These are the sins that we repudiate publicly and tell people are so awful, but that we ourselves indulge, that we take great delight in. He convicts us of those things, of the things that, we're tr- that we love more than we love God. He convicts us of that and shows us that it's a counterfeit, that it's a cheap substitute for the real thing, for really delighting in him. He convicts us of that, but he draws us, he draws our gaze to Jesus Christ. How is this good news? I mean, in the midst of a troubled life, how in the world is that good news? See, the Holy Spirit has not come to you to make you feel like a schmuck. He hasn't come to you to make you feel like that. He's come to you to show you And to show me how we have settled for far too little joy and far too little satisfaction in this life. All of the stuff that promises us so much, we get a little joy out of, we should enjoy it, but we built our identity upon that. We built our whole lives upon getting that stuff and being that person and and enjoying that stuff. And he's saying you're settling for far too little This God has given you an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. He's given you more than what you think that you have. 
We, we focus so much on what we lack, but he is made up for more than that in the gospel. And as you see him as he truly is, as you see Jesus Christ as who he truly is, he points you to the Father. He points you to a Father who loves his people so much that he would rather give up his only begotten Son than spend eternity without you. Have you understood the love of God for you like that at all lately? That's what he's trying to get you to see. How deeply loved you are. Don't settle for other things, other lovers of your soul. Settle for who Jesus is. Settle for the love of the Father for you. That's what this is all about. The reality is, though, is that what we want is more stuff, more money, more fulfilling experiences, less stress. The, the famous oil magnate, John D. Rockefeller, he was asked, you know, how much money does it take for someone to be happy? And he replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's true for anything. That's not just money. A little bit more experience, a little bit more fulfillment, a bit more satisfaction in life. But the reality is, is that we have that in Jesus Christ. Jesus never once, ever, ever, anywhere in all the Bible points us to those things as being the deepest source of our satisfaction. He always points to himself. He always points to him. John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we take the greatest delight in Him. Friends, how can you and I have joy in a bad economy when our house is worth nothing, when our portfolio tanks, when the well has just run dry in our life? How can we have joy in the midst of that? How can we have joy when your husband or your wife walks out on you or just stonewalls you, treats you like you're nothing, no longer expresses love for you. How can you be content when you have one health problem after the other? You just can't seem to get any relief. You're in chronic pain. You, you, you can feel yourself almost dying. You take one step forward and two steps back in this life. My friends, there's, there's nowhere else to turn for delight other than in Christ, other than in Jesus, other than in His promises to you, other than in the hope that you have. Hope makes you fight for something. People who don't have hope don't fight anymore. But hope makes you fight for something, makes you fight for joy in the midst of a life that's crumbling apart. And that's what He wants the disciples to see here their life is going to appear like it is absolutely falling apart in every way. And yet there's a joy before them, an eternal joy, a presence of God with them, even in the midst of the deepest possible pain. And he's trying to get them to see that the world can take my resources, but it cannot take Jesus' love for me. The Lord can take away my health, but it cannot take away Jesus' love for me. It can take away my friends, my family, my job, my money, my relationships, but 
Nothing in the world can take away Jesus' love for me. You have that promise. That has to bring you joy in a life that's flat out crumbling to pieces. Jesus wants the disciples to know that. He wants you to know that. He wants me to know that. It's, it's a promise that you have, Christian. That's the promise that you have in the gospel. If Jesus is your only hope in life and death, the hope that you have is that he has adopted you as your child. That he quiets you with his love. That he literally rejoices over you with singing. That makes you fight. Because you have hope. That's the promise that you have. It's a promise for all who believe in him. If you don't believe in him, it's not a promise. But it is an invitation. Come to him. Find your soul satisfied in him this morning. Let's think about that as we come before him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word that's so hard for us to hear in so many ways because it exposes our darkened hearts, our idolatries, the way in which we have left you for another lover. Oh, how we need you, Jesus Christ, to come and wean us off of those things. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to come and fill us with yourself. Fill us with your truth. For all that we need for faith and for life. We need you to come and make your presence known. So that we would enjoy you above all the other things that we enjoy. We need you to nourish our souls. We anticipate that now as we prepare to take your supper. To eat your bread and eat your body and to drink your blood in the supper. We need you to enliven our souls. Do that in us for your sake, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.